instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priest prevailed, and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Today I want to preach to you about Christ my substitute. Christ my substitute. There was a man named David Koska who was umpiring a Little League baseball game in Wheatland, Pennsylvania one afternoon when suddenly he looked up and he saw the black funnel heading toward the field. He rushed into the stands and grabbed his niece and he pushed her into a nearby ditch and covered her with his body. Then the tornado struck. When the youngster looked up, her uncle was gone. He couldn't be found anywhere. And David Koska had given his life in the deadly storm to save his little niece. You know, Christ gave his perfect life for our imperfect life. Many have called Christ a substitute for us because of that fact. In the dictionary, it would tell you that substitute is a person or a thing acting or serving in place of another. And Christ is without a doubt our substitute. He's our substitute in death and he is our substitute in life. He is, without a doubt, our substitute. His mind substitutes my mind. Philippians chapter 2, I believe, is that passage. His love substitutes my love. His character substitutes my character. And his image substitutes my image. I, I, I shall be conformed into his image. He's my substitute. On the cross, we see Jesus dying next to a man that he redeems. We talked about that this morning. But as Jesus's at Jesus' trial, we see him truly become the substitute for a man who deserved to die. For a man who is a criminal and a man who needed to be on that middle cross, and yet Christ stepped in and was his substitute and died on his behalf. And the trial of Jesus gives us a great picture of Christ as our substitute as we take a look at two men standing before this angry mob that we just read about, their future pending, but what we find is only one is sentenced to death. And so again, I want to preach to you tonight about Christ, my substitute. I want to start with the scene. Did you notice the scene there? We first off see that Jesus was arrested. He shouldn't have been arrested. It, the arrest was not, was not valid. It wasn't legal. There was nothing he had done wrong. And as he's brought before the council there in Jerusalem, the, the, the priest and the, and the high priest and the others, they manipulate the situation and, and they're guilty of deceiving everyone and, and sending in false witnesses so that they can accuse the Lord of something. But he stands there as an innocent man. As the scene continues, he's brought before Pilate. Pilate looks at him, and Pilate, who is a Gentile and not a Jew, he has no real, uh, real, real lot in this whole matter. You know, the Jews were upset because Jesus was turning people away from the Pharisees' teachings and away from the teachings of the Sadducees and away from the rituals and the traditions that they had become so accustomed to. But with Pilate, he had no, no claim in this thing, no stake here. And he looks at Jesus, and what he declares is he says, I, see no, I find no fault in this man. In verse 4, that's what he says. I find no fault in this man. And you'll never find fault in the Lord Jesus. Well, as the story goes on, Pilate sends him up to Herod because Herod, he finds Herod is the one ruling over the jurisdiction of the Galileans. And that's where Jesus is from. 
So he sends him up to Herod. Well, Herod just wants to, he wants to see a carnival show. He wants to see a sideshow act. He wants Jesus to dance like a little monkey and perform some miracle for him. And Jesus is not going to do that either because that's not why he's here. He's not here to perform miracles. He's not here to show off. God doesn't need to show off. You want God to show off? Walk outside and look around. God showed off when he spoke all this into existence. He doesn't need to show off in our lives. You know, I find it, it's odd sometimes. We look for these big supernatural miracles, and yet we miss the great miracle that's around us, which is life. We take it for granted so much, so often. And Herod, he wanted Jesus to perform some sideshow act for him. He wasn't willing to do that. So Herod disrespects him, dishonors him, mocks him, robes him in this robe, and then sends him back to Pilate again. Pilate gets him and he's still, he says, I can't find no fault in this man. He's absolutely innocent. You claim he's guilty of something, but I see that he's not guilty of anything. There's no sedition in this man. There's, no, there's, there's nothing that this man is trying to do to overthrow the Roman Empire, and that's what Pilate was concerned about. And finally, he brings him before the people, and the people are so adamant about destroying this man Jesus that they're willing to release Barabbas, a known criminal, convicted criminal, so that Jesus would go to the cross and die that day. The picture there of Barabbas and Jesus is a wonderful picture of the substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to understand some of these names here. Barabbas, for instance. We'll talk about him to begin with as we're, we're still talking about this scene. <clears throat> Barabbas, the name means a son of a father. You say, wait, why is that so significant? Boy, it's so significant. A son of a father. Jesus is the son of God the Father. You can see that these men stood there before the people that day, and it really represents those who are born of Adam, those who are under the God of this world, Satan's rule, and the one who was sent by God the Father in order to redeem mankind. And there they're both presented before the people, Barabbas, the son of a father, a robber, a murderer, a rebel. It says in our text, if you look back at chapter 23, in verse 25 it says, He released him unto them. Him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison. We would learn in other texts that Barabbas was accused of robbery as well. And it seems to suggest that Barabbas had sought to save the Jews possibly through some type of insurrection. You know, sedition is rebelling against the Roman Empire. And often Barabbas is painted in a picture where he's a, he's a, a vile criminal of some sort. And in fact, he was a murderer. But we don't know who he murdered. We don't know what he stole. We don't know what he was doing, but we know he was guilty of sedition. And that's a type of rebellion. And if you put yourself 2,000 years ago in that, in that um, nation there under the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had conquered Israel. And Israel was a providence and ruled within the Roman Empire. They were allowed to do some of their own things and practice their own uh, traditions. But for the most part, the Romans had rule over them. And it could, in fact, be that Barabbas was trying to find a way outside of that rule, so he rebels against the Roman nation in order to try to uh, deliver his people from this oppression. Could have been. And the thing is, Barabbas, what we find in Barabbas is he really represents the world who tries to, who tries to release themselves by their own way. 
There's another one who did the same thing, who rebelled and was guilty of sedition and other things. His name's Satan. The scriptures would say that he was a murderer from the beginning as well as a rebel. Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 says that he had pride in his heart. He rose up against God. He wanted to overthrow the throne of God. And that was his goal that he was going to, he was going to lead a third of the angels and conquer God and overthrow him. He was, a, he was a rebel. He was guilty of sedition himself. Barabbas, we find also, as it mentions there, that he was also a prisoner. And here's the thing. Many people are prisoners today to their own sin. They're prisoners today to, to Satan who is ruling and reigning in many lives because people don't understand the great power that delivers them from sin. We know in certain passages like Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we've gone astray away from God. We are guilty of doing the same things that Barabbas has done. As we've pulled away, we've gone our own way, we've rebelled against God, but yet the iniquity of us all was laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes our substitute. We find in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we all stand right there in the shoes of Barabbas on that day. And Christ desires to be our substitute. And that's, in fact, what he is. Now, if you will, turn with me to Titus. I want to show you a passage in Titus, chapter 3. Well, it's a few passages here. Hold your place in Luke. We'll come back to it. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> I believe Barabbas in some ways represents us all. I say that because we're all guilty of rebelling against God's ways. Uh, we're all guilty of trying to find our own way to make things right with God. Thankfully, many of us have put our faith and trust in Christ. But Christ stood there as our substitute because we were guilty of sin and we came short of the glory of God. And in Titus chapter 3, if you will, look with me at verse 3. It says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now verse 3, if you just hold there for a second, we're going to read down to verse 7. When Jesus was... Um, on the earth, and he was going through his earthly ministry, some of his teachings really caused people to think about God's moral law as given in the Ten Commandments. For instance, the law says, thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother or your sister, that you've committed that sin in your heart. And so one might say, well, I'm not guilty of murder as Barabbas was, but the truth is, as verse 3 says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceiving, serving divers' lusts, pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And that would, that would label us as spiritual murderers in the eyes of God. You see how we've come short of His glory. Verse 4, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, 
we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, even though we stood there that day in the shoes of Barabbas, you can turn back to Luke 23, and we stood there almost, almost as though Barabbas represents us because we are all the sons and daughters of an earthly father coming from the blood of Adam, we find that in the same scene, we find one who was there who was ready to be our substitute, the Lord Jesus. Now, you know, the Lord's name means Jehovah is salvation. Barabbas' name means the son of a father, but the Lord's name means Jehovah is salvation. The only way we're saved is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is there in such stark contrast to Barabbas. Barabbas, a robber, a murderer, a rebel, Jesus... Humble, meek, and lowly, but absolutely accepted by God. And Jesus humbled himself to the cross, and because he did, he set us free from the rulers of darkness that often control our lives. So the first thing is the scene. You see the scene? Jesus, he's arrested, he's betrayed, the lies and all have brought him to Pilate, and now the people are crying out, crucify this man. And the reason is, is because Barabbas was a reflection of themselves. They did not want one to rule over them, the one called Jesus. And therefore they said, we have no king but Caesar, and they rejected Jesus being king over their lives. Now the other part is the sedition, the sedition. Now we read about Barabbas's sedition, some type of rebellion here. But I find it interesting that even with the Jews back in chapter 22, as we read verses 63 through 71, we find here that it says, first off, verse 63, the men that held Jesus, they mocked him and they smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face, asked him, saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And they weren't going to believe. They were just looking for something to accuse him of. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. There's their ruler, God. This is the nation of Israel. They claim that they worship the one true living God, Jehovah. And yet when Jehovah, who is salvation, shows up in the Lord Jesus Christ, they actually reject him. And it says, Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? He said unto them, Ye say that I am. They said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. In other gospels you'll see that they accuse him of blasphemy. That was the charge of Jesus, that he had blasphemed the name of God. And according to Jewish law, blasphemy the only punishment that was appropriate was that of death. But they had the Passover coming. They couldn't kill anybody. It was against their customs. So what did they do? They took him to Pilate so that Pilate would have him crucified on a Roman cross. I want to share with you something in Luke chapter 20. The Lord had already prophesied that there would be such sedition, such rebellion by his own people. Look at Luke chapter 20. There was a parable here that Jesus had given, pick up in verse 9, and the parable really captures the entire scene that literally went on that day in Jerusalem as these chief priests were rebelling against their creator, against their God, and they were sentencing Jesus to death. Pick up in verse 9. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, 
and led it forth to husbandmen. Those are farmers. That's what that word means. And went into a far country for a long time. And at the season, he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husband beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent another servant. They beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. You see what's happening here. Somebody's rebelling. They were told just to watch over it, be the farmers there. They weren't told to own it, and now they're trying to steal it away from the one who tr truly owns it. Look at verse 13. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What therefore shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? Do you see what happened right there? You remember the Jews? They said, hey, because we're of the bloodline of Abraham, we'll inherit everything. We need to get rid of this man who's taking away our authority. And that's exactly what they did is they rejected Christ, sentenced him to death, and they killed him. But what does the Lord do? Verse 15 said, here's verse 16, He shall come and destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard unto others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And we know today the temple's gone. Judaism still continues, but it's not the way God's working in the world any longer. He's moved over to the Gentiles. He's moved over to the age of the Gentiles. That's where we are right now. And we see the church as the heartbeat of God today in this world. And it's because Jesus' people rejected him. And just as these husbandmen were, were, were given the responsibility to watch over the vineyard, and yet they didn't. They rejected the one who owned it. They, they sent his servants away. One, two, three servants. And then finally, they killed his son and they cast him out as well. The same parable aligns with the sedition that we find in Luke chapter 22. As they lied and accused Christ of being the blasphemer when they themselves were blaspheming God right there in front of them. The third thing I want to share with you is the sentence. The sentence. Go with me to chapter 23 again of Luke. Look at verse 25. It says, And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. The sentence here was that the one who was guilty of the crime, the one who deserved to be put to death, the one called Barabbas, was the one who was released. And the one who was innocent, the one who deserved to be set free, the one who deserved to be recognized as being perfect and good and right in every way was the one who was sentenced. We find it as Pilate here tries to release the man. He says, I find no fault in him whatsoever. I'll just chastise him and I'll release him. And over and over again, the angry crowd, they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And as I mentioned earlier in another gospel, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They declared their loyalty to the God of this world, not the God of heaven. But see, in all that that went on, here's the great truth that took place, is that though there was this great betrayal and there was this horrible sentencing of the Lord Jesus to go to that cross, Barabbas should have hung on that middle cross that day. But yet Jesus went and hung on that middle cross. And here's what happened. Because he did, 
He became our substitute. And just as in verse 25 it says, And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 4 with me. And this is uh, where I'm going to be concluding. I told you it was going to be short tonight. Romans chapter 4. Pilate delivered Jesus to their will, but I want you to know Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it actually says this. It wasn't their will, it was God's will. It says, who was delivered for our offenses. God did that. God's the one who allowed Jesus to be delivered as he was into the hands of the people for their own will. 425, 425, Romans 425. God was the one who delivered Jesus for our offenses, and here's why. It says he was delivered for our offenses, that's our sins, that's our trespasses, and he was raised again for our justification. And if not for that great scene that took place, that Jesus was put on trial, Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was sentenced to death, if not for all those things that went on, Jesus would not be our substitute today. And yet today, that's what he is. And so when you think about your, your life, your death, all your sins that, that you're guilty of in the past, and maybe ones you're guilty of now, or maybe ones you'll be guilty of in the future, I want you to know, I want you to try to imagine the face of the Lord Jesus. I want you to try to imagine those pierced hands, that pierced side, that bruised and battered face that as some scripture would say in Isaiah, he was marred almost to the point where he was unrecognizable. Think about his body that was broken and shredded for us. And as we think about all the things that we're guilty of in our lives and that we continue to live in sin sometimes, I want you to think that the Lord Jesus, remind yourself that he's the one. He took your place on that cross. He's your substitute. Just as he was the substitute of Barabbas on that day, he is your substitute today. And he's worthy of praise for that reason alone. And not only did he substitute for me when it comes to death, but also he becomes my substitute in everything. My mind must become the mind of Christ. As I said earlier, Philippians chapter 2. My love must become his love. As he looked at me, a wicked, evil, ungodly sinner, deserving hell itself, and yet he loved me enough to die for me that day. My life must become his life as I die and he lives through me. To live is Christ, but to die, there's my gain. And everything that I am must become Christ. And not only is he my substitute there, but he's my substitute here. And forever and always, I simply stand in the shadow of the Lord Jesus as he is my substitute. 